discussions today i'm joined by connor cp connor how are you doing hanging in there gabe hanging in there how about yourself i'm good i'm moving and i'm aware of the fact that you were moving as well oh yeah fun times yeah great times everybody knows how fun and anxiety free the moving process can be oh completely not backbreaking at all (laughs) not literally backbreaking for sure (laughs) Yes. So, you know, we, for context here, we did a uh, discussion a long time ago, a few years ago on Rob Zombie's Halloween movies, some of the most well-liked movies ever, especially in the horror community. 100%. (laughs) And uh, we are back now in a reunion to discuss a film by, you know, the legendary, the iconic, the one and only John Carpenter, but it's not one of his most famous movies. Surprisingly, in fact. Surprisingly, I would say so. I was testing your reaction there because some people do not like this movie. Uh, and they think it's deservedly kind of obscured in his catalog. And other people, uh, like myself, think it's great and arguably one of his, if not best, like it deserves to be seen just because of how different it is from his other films and how much it proves that he really was just a great director. Oh, I absolutely agree with that. Can't wait to get into the talk. Yes. And of course, we are talking about John Carpenter's Starman, released in 1984, starring Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen. Have you ever seen this movie before? Uh, Absolutely not. In fact, uh, I had only seen it. uh, I I had made a a list of an Amazon list of John Carpenter films that I needed. uh, And it was every one that had a good Blu-ray release. And Starman was on there, but I had never heard of it never thought about it uh until it was brought up in this topic uh, i had not even thought about watching it yes because i know i wanted to talk about john carpenter movie with you because you're obviously a fan and he has a lot of movies that don't get talked about enough arguably you know i some directors like their most famous movies, I, I think, are overrated, and their less famous movies are underrated. Like, I'm not going to say that Halloween is overrated, but it, it gets so much hype. And I'm thinking, well, why can't we spread that hype around to some of his other films? Because people think he was just a horror director, and he really wasn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we'll get into the movie itself, but this comes at a very fascinating place in his career. So, This is uh, a few years after he made The Thing. Now it's considered one of the all-time great horror movies. Then it was a bomb in like the worst way possible, right? So he was trying to shift gears and try a lot of different things, you know, to kind of salvage his career. Um, Do you think that, when do you think his career kind of peaked? Uh, Do you think after The Thing he started to fall off or... Do you think he was still staying strong? Honestly, I I feel like every I, I don't know I, I don't know a movie of his that I didn't enjoy until his later stuff. Honestly, I mean, truthfully, even his later stuff, I think there's a lot there that you can still take um, 
in a good way. I think there's a lot of stuff that's good in them, but I, I mean, from the start, I think he's, I think he started off kind of hot. I mean, I mean, considering the, what was the first, the first major film he did was, was Assault on Precinct 13. Is that correct? Yeah, he did okay. Dark Star and that was a student film and that was, that that got a theatrical release. So it was a real production, but it, you know, it was not up to the level uh, of like Assault on Precinct 13. Right. And, and even with, uh, even with that, I mean, just, just looking at his body of work after that, for me, I don't feel like there was a fall off point. Now I do think that there were some times where maybe his, uh, the, maybe the stories behind his film were not the strongest, but he still took that material and made it the best that it possibly could be and made it a good movie because of that. There, there are movies I can think of, including this one that we're going to talk about today that I think if any other director had touched it, it might not have been nearly as um, it would not have been nearly to the, to the bar of quality that it reached. Uh, so I, I, I think he's always been somebody who's been able to turn that around. Like I said, till later in his career, some of his, uh, his latter work, I think maybe could have used some work, but yeah. I, Are you thinking I like really Ghost of it. Mars? Yeah. Yeah. yeah like Ghost yeah. of Mars and uh, vampires. I didn't like too much. I know some people really like it. Um, I'm just not, a huge fan um, mm-hmm. so I, I think some of the as you get to the tail end of of his f- uh, filmography I think you t- kind of get to the stuff that I'm not a big fan of so I guess for me his, his peak was pretty long uh, he's yeah. had peak for a while yeah and this is interesting right so I had the exact opposite experience with Starman I saw it before I knew who John Carpenter was I saw it very young um, I knew who Jeff Bridges was and that's uh, what drew me to it in the first place okay and then years later i discovered it was a john carpenter movie i was like what like i could not remember anything of this film that would that that, that said john carpenter that had his style or any of his signature you know things as a director mm-hmm. so that was really fascinating for me to take a movie that i really loved as a kid and then, you know, through that, discover this whole new side to him. Because by that point, you know, I, I'd known Halloween and The Thing and his horror films. But now I saw, okay, he really had a wide variety of, of talents that he could apply. Yeah. So we're going to get into the film. And first, I just want to ask the simple question of, did you like it? I did. Um, I, I definitely had some problems with it, but I, mm. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Okay. Does it rank in a specific place in uh, his catalog for you? That's where it gets tough. So I, I've been meaning to make a list of, of his films that I've seen. Um, there, there's definitely some that I haven't seen yet, but uh, I, I tend to take my time with certain movies. This one is, is the one that I, as soon as I was done, I was like, I really need to make a ranking for his movies. Um, cause I thought, where would I put this? Uh, and I, I figured it would come up at some point, but I, I, I don't, I don't know if I have that spot yet. Um, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd really have to, to put it around them. Uh, but I can tell you it'd be, it'd be close to uh, a film like Prince of Darkness, which I can tell you, I actually very much enjoyed. So yes. putting it right around that, uh, it would, th- that shows you, I mean, how much I, I did enjoy the film. Yeah, and of course, it's hard to compare to his other films. How do you compare this film to Halloween or The Thing? It really right. does stand on its own. Now, 
this is his only Academy Award nominated film. And specifically, it was nominated for Jeff Bridges' performance. So let's start there. What do you think of that character and Jeff Bridges' uh, portrayal of him? Because he is obviously the, the focus of the film. Yes. And, you know, it's funny because when it first started out, um, I didn't know what kind of movie this is, was going to be. Because, as you said, John Carpenter tends to even even in my mind as somebody who watched his other films and could see his range of work um you just kind of put him into that category when things look a certain way or start a certain way you think it's going to be a certain way Mm. so i I didn't really know what direction the movie was going to take with how it started off it does start pretty quick um so i didn't know what to expect and when i first saw how he was acting as this character I was a little I I I was my natural reaction was to laugh a little bit I was I I thought it was I thought it was funny I didn't understand what was going on I I got what was happening I got what he was supposed to be but I was just kind of I was like okay this is eccentric but as it went on um it it was almost like captivating like I found myself uh completely drawn to the screen like my girlfriend was watching something in the other room I was just you know not too far away I could hear what she at some point the thing that she was watching completely tuned out I didn't even hear it anymore because I was just so focused on how on his performance he carried he didn't carry it by himself Mm -hmm. but he definitely uh he he blew me away a little bit I didn't expect it. It, it he is the driving force and I don't generally think of John Carpenter as being an actor's director he's had good performances like Donald Pleasance and Halloween oh, I agree but, yeah but um that's still not what I think most people would think of as his strong suit but really the performance that he and Jeff Bridges crafted the character that they crafted um got it really shows you that he had that capability too and it's rare to see him work with you know uh, an actor like Jeff Bridges who is just like oh, this yeah a-lister you know oscar winner he's the dude for christ's sakes so that team up was so interesting to watch now to explain the premise of the movie a little bit uh basically we have an alien who crashes on earth and takes the appearance of a a widow's dead husband and he gets this widow to um take him to this this site where he will either be picked up by, you know, his fellow aliens or, you know, if he misses it, he could die because he's not meant to be, you know, living on Earth. Uh, now, this was written at the same time that E.T. was written, and these scripts were being shopped around at the same time. Did you know that? Oh, no, I, I didn't even put that together. Yeah. And so people like studios were always trying to decide, well, which alien movie are we going to go with? You know, they were like competing. And obviously E.T. won out. It was made first. And that's like one of the biggest films of all time. And Starman was successful, but it wasn't, it wasn't comparable uh, in, in terms of its, its success. But do you have some kind of preference between those two now that you know that connection? Um, it's hard to say. It's been a long time since I've seen E.T. I mean, I think honestly, it's, I mean, obviously it's one of the most uh, iconic movies of that time period mm-hmm. um, so it's it's hard to you know pin something against it uh, especially when I haven't seen it in so long um, but um, I, I can say that I think they're I think they're different enough that they really could have been successful congruently and I think had they come out at a different time period where people didn't 
I, I think that was more of a time period where everything was kind of generalized. Oh, have you seen the new horror movie? Have you seen the new alien movie? Have you seen yeah. the new, you know? Um, so I think had it come out during a time that was less generalized with, with the genre of a film and more so of the quality, I think it, they could have been congruently successful, but um, I think it's hard to compare them for me uh, since they are so, I think they're different tonally, they, they're different yeah. like, progression and acting. They ended up being very different. Uh, yes. I can see reading the screenplays why they were so linked together, but they really do end up becoming different products. And I would say that Starman almost feels like this kind of mature version of E.T., not to diss E.T., but just right. uh, it has that different tone, right? It's a love story. Um, the There are special effects, but they don't drive the film. You know, our alien is a human that we can really relate to and connect to. So it's very different. It's very different. But it's also so interesting to know that one of the things that uh, killed the thing at the box office, or so people say, is that E.T. had come out just recently, and people were not ready to go from that alien movie to uh, an alien movie like The Thing. I actually, I, I had never heard that, but that makes a lot of sense of why people would, I guess, yeah. I guess, think that, especially audiences at the time, I can see how that would get, uh, I, sure. I can see how that would be jarring. <laughs> sure, sure, because, you know, uh, we didn't have streaming services back then, you know, nope. options were, we had a limited menu. So if you have a menu and one thing is like a uh, lobster and the next thing is, I, I, I don't know, like, uh, some kind of Middle Eastern dish, right? Like, why are these two things on the same menu? Anyways, that's yeah. You you get what I'm trying to say? No, I get. I I think that's a mm-hmm. that's pretty much a perfect analogy. You walk into a restaurant and you're. It, it's almost like I almost kind of compare it to like uh like. Almost like uh, I don't know if if you were to get something like this fine meal and then all of a sudden you have uh like you know like you said something just completely different um it just it it doesn't i could see how it wouldn't sit well with people yeah uh, especially in that time period where you know everything was so um i guess kind of it was just bad timing right yeah Yeah. it was just bad bad timing timing in a lot of ways And, and john carpenter was a victim of bad timing and just bad luck so often through his career because at least yeah yeah i mean really but this movie is also a victim of bad timing because now when it came out people were just saying it was like uh people were trying to remake et or john carpenter was trying to remake et you know because they came out close enough Uh, but this film is so it's so sensitive and gentle but it's also so soulful you know like um there's a lot of genre elements to it, but it really is a romance first and foremost. Did that surprise you? Yeah. Um, and that truthfully to a, to a certain point, it actually became one of the things that did affect the rating for me and didn't make mm-hmm. it higher. Um, because I, I think it could have been done in a potentially in a different way. I, I think some of it was a product of the time, but it did certainly surprise me. I thought it was going to go in a completely different direction than that. Yeah. Um, and sort of like, uh, you know, I, I, I always think about at a certain point in a movie, um, you know, there always reaches a certain point where uh, there's like a little bit of downtime in the film or, or nothing's truly uh, advancing. And just for a split second, I just thought, you know, what if what if I would made this movie? What, what would I have done? 
And I just kept thinking what I would have done. Yeah, that's That's got to be what happens. And basically it was just uh, that it's sort of this like connection that they get. And she ends up liking this, this creature that looks like her, you know, um, her, her dead husband, but uh, she realizes that, you know, she's got closure now and she's got, she's able to move forward. And, and that's how, you know, their connection is solidified. She helps them get home and everything, but mm-hmm. that now saying it out loud does sound a lot sort of like ET, not fully, but <laughs> I mean, with getting that connection and helping them get to their, to their yeah, home. I mean, the comparison's um, inevitable. And, and I, yeah. I, I hate to keep bringing that up, but obviously this is what audiences were thinking at the time. And that's something that did hinder its success. So it's important for context. Uh, obviously, though, E.T. is not a love story. This is a love right. story. Yeah. And uh, let's talk about that. Let's talk about their relationship and the chemistry between our actors, Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen. Uh, I presume you have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Of course. Yes, of course. And this is... One of her only other big movies, I believe. I haven't seen her in much else. Was she... I kept looking at her and trying to confirm this. Was she in Scrooge? She was, well? yeah. Okay. She was I thought she was in Scrooge because the, I've, I grew up watching that and I still watch it to this day. So I, I kept looking at her and being like, I think she's in Scrooge, but I can't, I can't say for sure because there's another... I mean, there's always other actresses that just remind me of people mm-hmm. if I haven't seen them enough. So I, she's one of them, but... Okay, I'm glad you confirmed that for me. Yeah, she was in Scrooge. So she was in like three big movies and then, you know, kind of dipped in terms of uh, like mainstream success. But she had a good run for a while. And I really like her in this role. There's Mm -hmm. screenwriting elements that do kind of um, make it hard to believe the connection between her and Starman, at least in a healthy way, because mm-hmm. for me, a lot of their relationship comes across like Stockholm syndrome. Mm, yeah. Were, were you thinking of that? Yeah, honestly, I, I didn't have as big of a problem because it's it sort of the way that they were doing it. It seemed less of like, I, I did get that sense at one point, but it seemed less like that towards as, as it started to progress, it started to seem more of like, okay, she's realizing that, you know, she's reaching a point where she's starting to realize certain things about this being. And that's why she's, you know, being the way that she is. And of course it looks Mm -hmm. like her dead husband. So, you know, there's that element to it as well. Um, I think to a certain point it, it started to work. Um, And I was like, I can't believe I'm actually starting to get behind what's (laughs) happening right now. But I, I do think there was a point where I finally was like, okay, I am no longer on the side of this, but it did. Um, I would, I would actually say that I agreed with you that I really liked her in this. And I think that there were a few points where I did start to question her character's motivations, but I do, I think, and I want to just, I want to just give her a shout out. I don't know if she's got any way to eventually hear anything that we're saying. Probably not. I don't know what she's doing. I hope I'll email well. this to her. I'll find um, her. Email. <laughs> I hope she's well, but I, everything that she was in, I thought she just played the perfect role and, you know, the three movies that I've seen are a small sample size now, but I mean, just like to take a character that could have easily been sort of just there and, and, and not a whole lot to go off of. I think she, she's done every role she's done very well. Oh um, yeah. But I do think there were some points in the script where I was just like, okay, well, uh, I don't know. Yeah. So first I think you're exactly right about her like taking these roles that could have been nothing like 
she plays probably my favorite love interest, romantic interest in a movie ever in Raiders of the Lost Ark. At least she's perfect for it. As far as as far as action movies go, like she really is my favorite. And it is a shame in my eyes that that they did not uh, bring her back for the sequels. That's always been a problem I've had with that franchise. Is there a story behind that? Uh, George Lucas, he wanted to make it like the Bond series, like there should be a new girl every time. Like, fuck off, George. (laughs) Well, let's 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 be real here. George Lucas has made some of the greatest and some of the worst decisions in cinema history. And uh, I think um, that's a a topic for a a different time, I think. But George Lucas is. uh, Yeah, let's not get started on George Lucas. (laughs) Let's let's well, well, that's a that's a different day. (laughs) That's that's a different week. There's so much to say. Yes, but she's a great actress. Um, the casting of her is one of John Carpenter's best decisions as a director. I don't know how closely he worked with his actors. Like, did he did he really like walk them through the performance, or did he just trust them, you know, and and let them figure it out? Uh, I'd be curious to know. I really would because they have uh, her performance is very natural, and Jeff Bridges is very like constructed. Obviously, he had to figure out how right. to portray an alien. And that blend of those two styles, it, it makes the actor's chemistry great. Uh, it doesn't fix the the script problems, which right. for me, really, the fact that he looks like her dead husband, I can't not think that there is some Stockholm syndrome, like psychological mm-hmm. problems involved. Yeah. But the actors, they do a great job. And that's really what's important. But it is so funny, right? Because John Carpenter could take this premise, you know, an alien takes the form of a dead husband and he kidnaps the wife, you know, to help him out. That could have been a horror movie, could it not? Yeah, and and in fact, a few points, um, the score indicated to me that, especially in the beginning, that that's how it was going to be. I thought it was going to be sort of one of those horror movies that, like, has its points of, like, hilarity, but it has its points where it gets kind of twisted. And uh, I was like, okay, this will be an interesting take, but... Um, I think that's why it surprised me so much of the direction that it went in because I'm, I'm with you. I thought it could have been some of the score and shots indicated that it, that's what it was going to be. Maybe John Carpenter was faking people out. You know, that, maybe he was. I would have done that if I were him. It makes a lot of sense because I don't think he had ever done a non-horror film aside from the television biopic of Elvis. No, well, Dark Dark Star's not a horror film, yeah. So let's also talk about the man himself, John Carpenter. If you were to watch this now, just put on this movie, just watch it, would you be able to tell at all that this was a John Carpenter film? So it's funny you mention that. So in some ways, I do think it does feel Carpenter, and I don't know really what it is. I think it's just... Maybe it's because I knew it was him, but honestly, as weird as this is going to sound, and I know this is going to sound very strange, but if you've seen some of uh, Toby Hooper's other movies besides like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mm-hmm. it's shot kind of like those, the color palette where they have like some parts where that are very um, high contrast and, you, you know, lots of use of the, the anamorphic uh, lens flare. Yes. And it felt... Like when I watch movies like uh, like I always say the criminally underrated Funhouse, um, the shots in that movie reminded me a lot of the shots in this, which is weird to say because they're completely different movies, but it it felt like one of those. So when I look at like the shots and such, that's usually my identifier for John Carpenter. Um, 
when yeah even that's like what cues me to make me think that he like ghost directed halloween 3 because it's just such a john carpenter movie but i just oh there's some maybe it's because i knew it was john carpenter that i think that there's a feeling of john carpenter but i i really did feel like if you're gonna if you didn't tell me who directed it i probably would have thought maybe toby hooper just Mm -hmm decided to do a, a random one-off non-horror movie and surprise here it is and that's that's what I would have thought but but I, you had said that you didn't think it was John Carpenter at all when you were growing up watching it do you do you feel well, that I didn't know who he was know? let me clarify I didn't know who he was when okay. I watched this movie I'd never seen any of his movies I'd never uh heard of him like I had no context or reference to John Carpenter so watching it again having become a fan of his films, I, I started to question that. And I think you're exactly right about the the cinematography being a key indicator because it's shot with that anamorphic lens. It's shot in Panavision. Mm-hmm. If, you know, he, he has a, you know, the way the camera glides around, uh, the lighting choices he makes, you know, very mm-hmm. high contrast use of uh, shadows in the right places. Uh, plus, there is that scene of Starman uh, kind of transforming into... That's the indicator yeah. for me. Yes. I mean, that is like straight out of the thing, except no, nobody dies or gets well, made. Right. The, the prosthetics were very akin to... And the way that they were moving, it, it, I thought the same thing. I was like, this is very thing. <laughs> yes. Also, you know, now that we're talking about John Carpenter... We actually have a uh, an actor in this film who played Jason Voorhees in Friday the Thirteenth Part Four. Did you know oh, that? I, yeah. I did not. Uh, I did not know that information. Okay, what what character does he the, uh, appear as in this? The 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 redneck guy who punches Starman. He had the deer on his truck. Oh, okay. The, yeah. yeah, the guy with the deer on the truck. Okay. Yeah, Ted White. Oh, that's awesome. I, I had no idea. That, that's pretty cool. That is very good. Cool. Just like another little, I mean, I'm not saying he was cast because he played Jason Voorhees, but oh, just right. yeah. still just kind of like these little touches here and there that, you know, can remind us that, you know, John Carpenter is, you know, he comes from the world of horror, you know, that that is still in his blood, even though he's taking on a very different project. Adds to his charm. Yeah. Adds to the charm, absolutely, absolutely. And let's talk about another side of this film, which is, you know, the government chasing down Starman. And it's handled very differently, is it not, than your typical – because we've seen this plot so many times, right. you know. But this, it, it's like incomparable to any other um, – you know, any other science fiction movie with that storyline, would you agree? Well, I think so many of these movies and, um, you know, I think it's built off of this either distrust or disdain for authoritative figures. Um, yeah. And, and that's been a theme in so many movies like this. And it's that, you know, the government doesn't handle things well or the government is the bad guy. And in a sense, I think that that was the case in this. But I think that the, the adding that character um, and I'm, his name is escaping me in the film, but uh, adding that scientist character who is really the driving force behind the, the, the final part of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I think made it work really well. Cause you, you think that they're taking this direction and even with him up until a certain point, 
you can see these little hints after what happens happens, but you don't get that sense when you're watching it at first, you get the sense of like, yeah, he's like super curious, but I, I think at the end of the day, he's going to, I mean, that's always what happens. The, yeah. They always end up screwing him over somehow or, or trying to, or whatever it is. So um, adding that character, I think really helped. I, and, it, and it surprised me. I, I'm not often surprised. I can, I think I can pick things out pretty well when I take these movies apart. And I, I didn't see that coming. So, yeah, we're talking about the character of Mark Sherman played by Charles Martin Smith. He's, uh, an actor of the era who was in many famous movies like American Graffiti, The Untouchables, you know, he had a good career. And this character really is what elevates at least that subplot of the movie, if not the movie itself, because I agree that sense of curiosity he has. Like, this isn't just a love story in terms of like the love between Starman and Karen Allen. It, it there's something very sincere about this movie's you know sense of wonder mm-hmm. and sense of scientific curiosity, and that character uh, brings so much to that. And we don't have any generic action scenes like you know, like uh, you know, men in suits shooting at Starman and he you know right. kills them all, makes their heads heads explode. That would be a different movie. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, but Starman does have some abilities, some special powers, and I wanted to touch on those because I thought it was pretty original. So he has these like glowing orbs, and he, if he squeezes them tight enough and then releases his hand, he can make something magical happen. Yeah. That's the best way I can describe it. Yeah, I think that's the best way anybody can really describe it. I just kept saying he, he keeps whipping his balls out. Um <laughs> But, uh, but no, honestly, like that's exactly what happens. I mean, uh, I was really confused at first on what it was going to be. Um, it's weird. Ever since I was a kid, anything that looks like a sour gumball to me, I'm always like, oh, okay, I'm interested now. Um, so I know that sounds weird, but that's what it looked like to me at first. So I was like, okay, uh, this is weirding me out. But then he did like that squeeze. And then uh, one thing I noticed is that they always kind of disappeared. So I guess it's sort of like a, manifestation thing but i was i thought that was really cool i didn't i've never seen that in a movie before no that's like that's what i remembered the most from when i was a kid was those special orbs his balls of steel let's say (laughs) um and i like they don't go overboard with it like there's not a scene where he's just like you know squeezing his balls left and right making all this (laughs) shit happen It, it comes at very specific points it kind of punctuates these scenes of, you know, uh, the actors really taking the time to uh, establish their characters, establish their relationships. It's a performance-driven movie, and I love that. And it doesn't just drive – it doesn't just happen to give us these nice little moments. It, it also – because a lot of movies like this that have that sort of tone where you're supposed to warm up to this character throughout the movie have these moments that don't really drive the story per se, but drive the – audience and i think Mm -hmm. it did a good job of doing both where you know it was not only driving the audience to liking this character who maybe like especially at the time they probably could have been scared of at some point in the film uh very early on um yeah loving the character and being endeared by some of the things that he was doing kind of uh no pun intended there with the the actual deer scene but um 
it it made sense every time he used it it made sense of why he was using it and it didn't just drive the story but it drove like the narrative that they're trying to push this character yeah it, they do a wonderful job of building this character the way he transitions from being you know scary right how, like he comes into this woman's house uh he, he holds a gun to her like he forces her at gunpoint to start taking him around eventually and i love this about the relationship she says look i'm not going to keep doing this if you want to shoot me shoot me and then he's like no i'm not going to shoot you now i, mean, I do have a question yeah uh yes exactly right but that is a slight problem for me why does he threaten her if he has no actual like like malicious intent i i don't know if it was so much as a threat because it didn't seem to be a threat at first it's almost like he didn't fully understand it because if you if you notice like the scene that sort of made me think that it made me think for sure that he was using it as something that he knew would be a driving force but i don't think he knew the full extent because when she comes to that point where she's like look if you're just gonna shoot me pick up your gun and shoot me Hmm. and he picks it up and he holds it kind of he points it right at her and then lets the uh the clip fall out so it's like he has a sense of what this gun does but he doesn't have a full sense of its uh i guess ability does he have a good good sense of mortality like does he understand that you know if he shot her she would die I think he has a sense of the gun does something similar to it's a, it's a weapon, but I don't think he has a full sense of what the weapon is capable of. Cause yeah. all at, at that point he knew how to shoot it, but that's because he, he, he just saw the, um, the, you know, the, the, basically the person that he's portraying on film shooting bottles. So if I know if I were an alien, I would just think, okay, well you, you to shoot bottles. That's what you do. I, I, I mean, I think that there was a certain sense of what it does, but I don't think there was a full sense mm-hmm. of what it was. But it's also amazing how much Jeff Bridges like makes that work. Like on paper, th- this feels very different, right? If it you just like explain it to me, at. something you either laugh at or get creeped out by like Jeff Bridges really does. Like even when he's trying to be threatening, you don't as an audience feel threatened by him because you can sense this innocence that you know he really doesn't mean any harm uh so the casting of jeff bridges was brilliant i don't know how famous he was i mean i know he was in movies he was i think nominated for a few academy awards here and there uh, came out before this right he was in was yeah he was in tron yeah he was yeah. in tron uh, a few movies before that like the last picture show mm-hmm. um and his image was definitely that of the nice guy right very often though he was not the leading man this was maybe one of his first leading roles so it came at a very uh interesting point in his career too this was like uh something that really boosted him in a big way even if it didn't seem to boost uh many other people's careers at least he got something out of it you know career-wise uh which makes total sense because this is like a showcase for for what a charismatic actor he is and how he can take any role and just make it make it work, yeah. Elevate it. Exactly. Yeah, now we've said all these nice things, but I know you have some problems. I have some minor problems, but they should be addressed. But why don't you say, you know, tell me why this isn't a 10. Tell me why this isn't up there with Carpenter's Best. 
Yeah. So uh, personally, I, I have I have gotten to the point where I've come to a rating. My ratings are very um, different. I, I like to do two things. I like to do out of out of five stars, and then I do a score out of a hundred, just because I think it, it narrows it. You know, sometimes for me, I think I have a five star movie, but it's not as good as another five star movie. So I, I try to put mm. them into perspective, and I don't quite have a score for this one yet. But I I, I tend to give movies higher ratings than people think I would. Um, and I, I gave this one a 3.5. And the reason I did that, um, there were a few points in the movie where I just thought things would have worked better if they were done a different way. And I don't know, I, I feel like I, I should have gotten to know to, and love these characters before a certain point, because mm. honestly, up until about half the movie, my favorite character was the waitress at that one restaurant that they went to that served them the pie, apple pie. That was she my did, favorite yeah. character. And it, it's still, I mean, I still think that's a great character. I still love that yeah. lady. Yeah. Um, but I think honestly, the biggest problem I had with the movie, and again, I think it's a product of the time a little bit because every 80s leading man movie had this happen, but I just don't know if it should have been your traditional sex scene. I just don't think that worked for me. Um, I get why people would say the opposite. And, you know, the point of the relationship between them, I guess, kind of worked for some people. I, I get why people would say that, but I did not think it was, I didn't think it worked. I, I think if they still wanted to do the whole pregnancy thing, I think they could have done that in a, in a different way. I just didn't think it worked for me with the characters and how they'd have been built. Um, and that is really what bothered me enough to knock it down a good bit. There were some points here and there in the movie where I just thought something seemed forced or sudden, um, especially like that group of guys who came rushing out of the, the restaurant to, to beat him up. Um, yeah, I was Jason like, Voorhees. when, yeah, I was like, when was it established that he had a bunch of friends in there that are ready to just come out and, and, wreck yeah, it you know, I mean, it's a small town thing, right? Yeah, Everybody right. knows each other. Yeah. Um, I, you know, there were things that are they contrivances for the scripture, but they play out naturally enough. Like, right. If I like a movie, I can be very forgiving of, of things like that. Um, so let's talk about this scene, right? The, the, the sex scene. Um, it's not very graphic. It's no, not no, an R-rated no. film. Um, but did you not like the fact that they actually like had sex, that they actually had like that their relationship got to that point? Or did you just not need to see it on screen? I just didn't get why it had to be. I didn't think their relationship warranted it. Like I get why she, you know, some people could say that it, it would because at the end of the day, it is somebody who is pretty much her dead husband. Just it's like almost like they're being puppeteered, but with some of the same, um, you know, some a lot of the same features and such. And um, you know, it's it's basically them, but not them. But I just didn't think. I, I thought it would have worked just as well if he had used one of the little ball things to make that happen instead of doing well, he did it. use his balls well he did <laughs> use his balls but not in the way that that i would have thought i, I would have yes. thought he would have used his little magic uh hand crush thingies to mm -hmm. you know make make something happen there and to to let her know it i still think the end would have worked with letting her know what happened and uh you know i just i felt like at the end of the day like she just screwed an alien and then she knows it's an alien even though it does look like her husband and i guess that does go back to that stockholm thing you said but yeah I just, I don't, it just, it didn't work for me. I, I get why somebody would be okay with it, but um, 
I, I felt like they, it could have been, it would have been much less forced to like, Hey, let's have a sex scene to sort of make it meaningful, but not, Hey, she just screwed an alien. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I very rarely see sex scenes that I think should be in the movie or add to the movie in any real constructive way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would, I would say this does not add to the movie in a, in a good way. It, it adds mm-hmm. to my feeling that this is a Stockholm syndrome relationship. <laughs> yeah. right. uh, so that's bad. Um, you know, probably some producer or somebody said, now nah, we got to sex it up, you know, like this is yeah. feeling too much like a kid's movie. We got to sex it up. So I, I agree that it was not necessary. It doesn't make me knock it down, uh, right. especially because it's, it's not explicit. It's not exploitive. It's pretty quick. That so, would have knocked it down a lot more for me if they started showing close-ups and that would have been weird. <laughs> if they just turned it into a, turned it into a, you know, a late lonely night and nope, I'm good. Nope. Yeah. Like I don't want to do that. Starman Skinamax version. <laughs> don't need that. We don't need that. We've already heard the rumors about the, I don't know if you've heard the rumors about the galaxy quest rated R version, but we don't need this one. No, no. Jeff Bridges is someone I just don't need to see. <laughs> I don't need to see him uh, do that. So no, never. yeah, I think, you know, we both agree. That's not, um, that's not, necessary and the fact that they even have sex that they consummate that relationship in that mm-hmm. way um there are questions to be raised there yes questions i don't want to get into thankfully whenever i really start to get on this bad vibe something will happen like the movie will take my mind off it right it's very well paced that way because uh, it happens more than once but then again you know either we cut back to the scientist or you know we cut to a new scene and Starman is doing something very charming, like bringing a deer back to life. Right. Yeah. So it's very well paced in that regard. If I had any other real criticisms, I would say some of the effects are dated for sure. Um, especially the one where uh, he's walking away from the explosion. You remember? Yes. Yeah. That one I thought was the most dated, but I will say I was actually really impressed by the opening of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was still relatively dated. I could still tell that it wasn't current, but I, I think they did a good job of like making it so otherworldly that it didn't really matter that it was outdated. I think the satellite itself, I think just there was no way they were going to make it look good. They could not put the lighting on it back then. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same thing with like Star Wars, you know, like the shadows and such are all artificial because they had to make it as a model. I don't know how they did this one, um, but going directly from that beautiful Columbia Pictures intro of the 80s to this just gorgeous space scene. I just thought it was really well done comparatively, um, but I thought, I almost kind of chuckled when he walked out of the fire. <laughs> I was like, okay, yeah. Yeah, especially because, you know, that's supposed to be a big hero shot. And right. When you have a special effect that, you know, is in a shot that is so important to the movie either plot wise or tone wise that's really a shame uh, when it doesn't hold up and it really does i mean you just can't have the same reaction to that shot as the filmmakers intended but again that's really a nitpick more than anything this movie was shot on a 24 million dollar budget that's not a whole lot of money to produce a science fiction film 
And oh, no. I don't know. Yeah. No, it looks good for today. It's just some of the more dated effects come at the most important points. That's the unfortunate thing. Right. But still a nitpick at the end of the day. And, you know, there's another thing we should mention. I think this is cool, although it might make it dated in another way. So this movie is kind of centered around a real life event. The, um, the launch of the Voyager two, um, that was a satellite that was launched. It had this like record inside it that had like all mm-hmm. of this pop culture stuff. It had all these languages, music, etc. It was an invitation to any possible extraterrestrial life to come visit us. Uh, that was a real thing that was launched around the time. Um, it's the basis for this movie. Not a lot of people know about the Voyager two anymore. Uh, did you? Actually, yeah. Um, I, I have a. Um, I don't have a deep interest in that stuff, but. Um, more recently, uh, I've been, I'm very nostalgia driven. Anybody who knows me knows that, uh, even things that I was not alive for, I somehow feel a sense of nostalgia for, I think just mm-hmm. cause, um, you know, I grew up with, uh, a lot of influence from, um, times before I was around. So I get weirdly nostalgic. So all of a sudden I'll just pop on this information and, and weirdly enough, NASA was one of those things. And I, I actually read about Voyager maybe a couple months ago. So, um, it's kind of cool that this movie kind of, I was like, Hey, I know what they're referencing. Yeah. And I'm really glad that they did that. It's not a criticism. It just is like, you know, somebody who didn't know about that probe won't be able to fully appreciate it. It still works for the story and they explain it well enough. Uh, Yeah. But it was a real thing. That's super cool. Um, I hope we get back to really, you know, exploring space full on. I know there's so much talk with Elon Musk and everything. I don't trust the guy. I get bad vibes. But <laughs> I'm, um, I'm kind of with you there. Yeah. Yeah. He's trying to build a town in Texas, like a small town. I'm like, okay, can we? Now I'm getting Halloween 3 vibes. Exactly. Okay. Can you tell me he doesn't have a nefarious plot? Really? Oh, he's, he's, he's got, you know, uh, he's got, you know, Connell Cochran written all over him, honestly. I mean, he's, we're going to have a, have a, have a curfew of what, 7 PM in the town that he has, and everybody's going to work for the plant. And if they don't work for the plant, they're going to talk bad about it and disappear. And I'm, I'm telling you, it's, it's going to happen. I'm excited. I'm excited to see that develop. <laughs> all right. So I think we're wrapping up here. I guess this would be a good time to go into final thoughts and ask who would you recommend this movie to, you know, would you recommend it to literally everyone or is there a specific audience for this movie? I think that's kind of tough. If you can get an appreciation out of movies that do feature things that are very of the time. And if if you can, um, you know, just watch a movie as an audience member and not as a critic, I think it's something that anybody can enjoy. Um, but I don't think it's something, I don't think it's something that everybody will enjoy. Uh, and I think that's part of, it, it'd be tough. It'd be a tough recommend for, for everybody. But I do think for people who, I think I would have to know the person pretty well in order to know whether or not they would enjoy it. But I do think it could add a lot to somebody's life in that regard. I think somebody would really get a lot from seeing it. So if I knew somebody well enough to know that they would enjoy it, it would be the quickest recommendation of uh, any movie I've seen recently. I can tell you that. Yeah. I would recommend this to a few types of people. Maybe the appeal is more limited than I would like. I I would love for a universe where this is 
a more popular and widely talked about film. But I would definitely recommend it to fans of science fiction, uh, fans of John Carpenter, who now have a chance to see a different side of his filmmaking. Uh, I've once heard this called a John Carpenter movie for people who don't like John Carpenter. And I don't know many people who don't like him, but uh, I, I guess that makes sense. That does apply in, in a certain way. If you don't like horror movies, this is certainly John Carpenter's best film for you. But yeah, anybody who just has an interest in science and space exploration and anything like that, any scientific curiosity, I think this is a really charming movie uh, that will speak to people of, of that uh, mindset. And yeah, I would just really say if you like good movies, just check it out. Just give it a chance. Agreed. Yeah. So thank you for coming on the podcast to discuss this film. I hope that this will rank highly in your John Carpenter catalog. You know, I know it ranks highly for me. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm ready to, uh, I'm ready to do that ranking. Cause honestly, I do think it's gonna, I think it's gonna be in a really good spot. And, um, you know, like I said, I'm, I like, I like movies that don't get a whole lot of attention or, or at least a whole lot of positive attention um, yeah. that I think deserve it. And I, I think this is one of them. By the way, if I ever did a John Carpenter ranking, I would get murdered because it's, <laughs> it's insane. Now, let me, let me ask you where, where does this place for you in that ranking while we wrap up here? Yeah. So I've only seen it a few times, so it's hard to say that I, I like it as much as something that I've seen so many times, like the thing. But I think in terms of how much it makes me respect him and how uh, valuable it is, you know, a, a, as is a creative piece, it's probably probably top three, honestly, probably number three. Okay. You know? Yeah. 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 Pretty high for me. Um, but with me and John Carpenter, I just have a weird relationship with him. Like, I love seeing him take on different genres. I love seeing him experiment and, and pushing himself. Because I think the problem with his later films is that he stopped pushing himself and he just started resorting to his old, you know, techniques. Like, Ghost of Mars is basically just a shitty version of Assault on Precinct 13. Yeah, I think he got to a point where he just he knew what formula worked and he knew he was just do, gonna do it. I don't I can't say this because I, I'm I'm not confirming this. This is my speculation. Mm-hmm. I have nothing but respect for John Carpenter and I feel like uh he's he, he could very well be my favorite director. I don't know for sure. I haven't actually thought about who my favorite director could be, but he's up there. Mm-hmm. Um but I do think he got to a certain point that a lot of directors get to where they're not necessarily doing their movies for the love anymore. They might yeah. be doing it for the money. And I'm all for that. Uh, make your money in your movies. Um, but that doesn't mean the audience has to like it. Um, and I think overwhelmingly his later films didn't have that. And I think you're right. I think he just sort of went back to the well and when he didn't, he just phoned it in and again, go for it. But Hey, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm with you. Yeah, not judging, not judging. Exactly. Right. You know, to, to the legend. To never, to never, you know, make a bad movie or to never, you know, get past your prime. I mean, you'd be like a freak of nature, or you you would die really young. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. So put yeah. it into perspective. I know with a lot of people, they love his his, his films so much that it 
genuinely hurts when they they come across a film of of his that they don't like or think is very good. I get that, but you know, with him, he had been burned so many times. He'd been burned so many times by that industry, and if anybody, you know, really has the right to get burnt out, get disillusioned. I mean, it'd be him. Like, yeah. Do it, yeah. do your money work, man. You've done your art. Make your money. Yeah, because it almost felt like the better his movies were, the less people liked it at the time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, uh, Halloween was was a big hit. But after that, it's like, you know, The Thing was not a big hit. And The Math of Madness was not a big hit. Uh, big Trouble in Little China was a bomb. Wait, I can't – I just – it's so hard to look back and just be – I. Look, again, very nostalgic. Look back with rose-tinted glasses on anything old. But I just think sometimes, like, what were these audiences doing? Even They Live, I don't understand how that... Like, it's even it's not the greatest movie ever. But I don't get how people didn't just go, wow, this is a great time. I, I need to... Like, I, like, how do these movies... are? How are they not fun for people? And, and that one, They Live. so much appreciation yeah. now for these movies because... Um, uh, they just uh, announced a, a potential remake for uh, Big Trouble in Little China, and everybody's pumped for it. So exactly, yeah. There's clearly love. Oh, I mean, I I would struggle to think of a director who has a more devoted fan base than John Carpenter. But it is interesting to note with They Live. I think the reason makes more sense there because it was a political film uh, attacking yeah. attacking politics that were very popular at the time. You know, he made that. You know in the eighties at the height of, of like Reaganism, whatever you want to call right. that, you know, this conservative movement. Uh, so yeah, that was not as viable that I'm so glad he made that movie. Oh, me too. Yeah. <laughs> I love I it. I mean, it, it's ballsy as hell and you got to respect really no matter what your politics are, but you got to respect um, that he just made a movie that challenged audiences at the time. And that's what, the thing about him is, you know, he challenged audiences. He pushed them. Yep. And whether or not they knew it, he was like pushing the envelope and changing what uh, was going to be popular or not. And that is an accomplishment that I, I don't think can be topped by a director. He made movies that were uncomfortable enough to still see it. Yeah. Whereas I think some directors, and I think you can throw that back to the director we had a conversation about before, where they make it so uncomfortable at times that they don't want to see it, like like a Rob Zombie, which I would have a hard time recommending to people <laughs> um, that I want to I would be ashamed. With. I would be ashamed. Uh, exactly. To it, that. it makes you yeah. kind of embarrassed. But I think he's one of the, John Carpenter is one of those directors that gets the, he, he gets to that point where he's going to unsettle you, but not enough for a general audience to completely mm-hmm. ignore it, which does surprise me about why so much of his early films did not do as well as they should have, or as well as they were commercially yeah. later. Well, it's just context, you know? I mean, audiences had never seen special effects like the thing. Like, right. and they never seen it used for that kind of purpose to totally disgust you. Uh, it was just, too, it came out too early, too ahead of its time. Body horror would become a big thing. Um, in the latter half of the 80s, what with The Fly and movies like that. So it came out at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. But then again, you can make the argument, if the thing hadn't come out, would we have gotten those later movies that were successful? So, yeah. Right. Yeah. And I can't wait uh, for like 20 years to pass and, and Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 is just the most popular and, <laughs> and loved horror film of it's, all time. It's kind of getting there. Honestly, 
I've seen so many more people turning the corner with that film. I think, uh, I think his movies as a whole, I think will reach a point where the appreciation gets improved upon. And I think the reason that people are going to start turning around is they're going to realize the significance of them, which it's, it's definitely a topic that we should talk about. I mean, but think about the trends that can, and John Carpenter is very much the same way. And I think we can relate it back to him where, mm-hmm. you know, like you said, if the thing hadn't come out, um, you know, who's to say these other movies would have happened later on. And it's the same thing with Rob's movies in a sense. I mean, uh, think about the time period of horror movies that came out in the late 90s um, and you know what kind of horror movies are coming out around then they all felt uh, pretty much the same movies that came out from what 1996 yeah like the screen era yeah. yeah it was pretty much the same thing and then here comes Rob Zombie who originally made his film in I think 2000 or 2001 it came out in 2003 yeah and all of a sudden after that you get movies like Saw you get movies like, that you get movies that actually disgusted audiences and and for better or worse it it, they were the movies that were extraordinarily violent i will say yeah i mean to make a movie like the devil's rejects that it's just one of the most obscene films i've ever seen and to have have it be an actual popular successful movie both at the box office and with critics how how can you not respect that I know this is becoming more about Rob Zombie now. We have a lot of thoughts on the man. Uh, And of course, these two men are linked, John Carpenter and Rob Zombie's. Their destinies are linked for better or for worse. But I think they have a lot. John Carpenter doesn't want to admit. Oh, man. Uh, I hope they've (laughs) resolved that bad blood. I hope they don't. It seems like they have somewhat. Okay, that's good. I mean, yeah, I've never heard a director call another director a piece of shit. I've never heard that. Yeah, I, from what I've heard, he's since done interviews where he said he respects the movies that he made of Halloween and that they're his own and that when he made the second one, he actually went to him and was like, okay, well, you know, do your own thing. Like, you know, that's that's what this is going to be about. So I, I, I think they have patched it up from what I've heard, but I have not had any verification. That made me kind of sad, though, because like, like we said, there's, they're, they're, so, they're connected in so many ways. And I know that some people are going to get really mad about us saying that. I'm not really comparing how people could enjoy their films. I really enjoy Rob Zombie, but like we said, I think I would recommend a John Carpenter film way before I would recommend a Rob Zombie movie. And sure. that's not to say I don't appreciate him more, but I, I think um, in a lot of cases, it's just like you said, it's just a, a sense of embarrassment. Whereas John Carpenter kind of makes movies that can fit a general audience, even though they yeah. kind of gross. <laughs> when you tell people that you like Rob Zombie, uh, I don't know if this has happened to you. People will like really look at me like, what's wrong with you? Yep. And, yeah. It's like a big joke with my friends and I kind of lean into it. Like I wear my Rob Zombie shirt and everything. Too. <laughs> uh, so God, we are, are basically setting up a future episode where we just talk about Rob Zombie. It'll be called the Rob Zombie apologist hour and everything. <laughs> but this is about the man who started it all with, I mean, without John Carpenter, I mean, the face of horror filmmaking would would just not be the same in any way, shape, or form. So it all comes back to him. And even though this is not a horror film, I think it is a very valuable viewing experience in terms of how much you appreciate him as a director. A hundred percent. And yes, and it, it's an, it's it's really um, a showcase of how he can take pretty much anything that you give him, and if he wants to make it something good and worthwhile, he's going to do that. 
Exactly, because he saw he read the script and he knew this was not his traditional type of movie, but he just liked it so much that he wanted to do it. He wanted that challenge, and that's what separates then John Carpenter to now John Carpenter. But uh, we'll always have movies like this to remind us of just what made him such a powerhouse of a filmmaker. So, and again, thank you so much, Connor, for coming on the podcast. Thank you for your, you know, insights into John Carpenter. I know you're a big fan and this was great to have a discussion about this film with you. So I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed our first conversation. I've really enjoyed this one and, uh, Hope, hope for some more. I'll, I'll gladly come back on anytime you want me on. You'll probably come on like what, uh, two years later? Like we'll just do one every two years. <laughs> let's let's uh, <laughs> let, let's try to make it more frequent than that. Now that we uh, now that we're uh, back on it and yes, you know, on our on exactly. our, uh, on the right road. So let's try to make it more frequent. But if it does have to be another two years, I'll be happy to be on in another two years. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for this episode, guys. Uh, if you enjoy this podcast, you know, just follow us on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. Let us know your thoughts and we will be seeing you again next week for another episode of All Nighter Discussions. Hello, it is Ryan and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.